you about was, um, you know, I, it, within Buddhism, obviously, the concept of um, anatta, you know, non-self or no-self, whatever translation you prefer, which, which one would, do you think is more accurate, maybe? Let's start from that. Um, the actual ad, uh, correct or adequate translation is not the issue. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of pointing to I, the same... Yeah, they're they're trying to all understand the same thing, and so they keep pointing off in all directions. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> the Western mentality doesn't understand what the Buddha was talking about in the sense of anatta versus, mm -hmm. uh, let us say, reincarnation. Do you have any specular questions about it, or so I just launch right in? Yeah, the, the question, I suppose, was sort of, um, you know, if we, obviously within Buddhism, there's this refutation of, a, of an enduring soul concept that we see in a lot of other, uh, you know, philosophical and religious traditions. Um, the question there is, if, if there's sort of not what we might call an, an agent that is performing, you know, the actions or whatever, there's not a, um, a center that is, that is dictating everything, who or what is actually inclining toward Nibbana? Uh, who is making right. these choices? Well, we can talk about that. You use the word agent, and that actually is a useful word to use for understanding. Mm -hmm. Agency, okay? Uh, in uh, United States federal law, uh, in certain circumstances, the definitions are, are used of the term ownership, control, and agency, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, without going into a lot of uh, uh, legalese, uh, an owner is um, not always the problem. Um, the example was in, uh, in very quickly, in the Carter administration, a law was passed to make mines reclaim the land if they had done any kind of strip mining or any mountaintop or uh, anything that wasn't a deep hole mine mm -hmm. that disturbed the surface, then the miners had to go back and, and reclaim that land before they could get another miner's permit. Mm -hmm. Okay, the question is, who owned that strip mine? Who was the agents and who controlled it? Right. Because you can have a whole group of five guys, all of them are involved in that strip mine, and they all decided to get together and say, let's go get another permit from the United States government. Only this time it's not Billy, it's going to be Joe who gets the permit. Right? Mm -hmm. We also wind up with Aunt Susie kinds of situations in the sense that the owners of, of the old mine will now sell it for a dollar to their sister. And now she owns it and now she's got to clean it up. And meanwhile, uh, the original owner doesn't own the land anymore. Therefore, he's not responsible for cleaning it up. And so he can go get a new permit. Mm -hmm. You see how the and so that was how the, the, the law was working. Um, and that it brought up uh, for me, because I was already deep into Buddhism at that time, that whole co concept. So here we are now, ownership, control, and agency. 
Mm -hmm. The owner of who you are is the issue that the Buddha is raising. Who owns this thing? Mm -hmm. And here you are talking about agency, something completely different. Okay. The right. agent, in fact, does is not the owner, but the agent can, um, let us say, uh, make decisions and have things to do that affects who or whatever the owner would be. Okay, if you can get this concept down, then we can go into it a little bit more. Because. Um, the. Let us just talk about reincarnation for a little bit. Sure. The history of it, why it's good, where it comes from, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It appears, um, based upon some research that some other monks have done, that the whole concept of the self and rebirth and reincarnation, and especially karma and the results of karma, got started very solidly about 800 BC in the Upanishads, in the Rig Vedas, under the guise that uh, at those times, the Aryans had already invaded um, India from Mesopotamia, and that the Brahmins were unhappy with this because they were losing power and losing control. They used to own all the land. How did they own the land? Was because they were the priest, and they had convinced all the other people that these priestly duties were needed. So right. when the Aryans came in, there was a new kind of conflict, and the Brahmins came up with the idea that, oh, we are Brahmin by birth. We are born Brahmin. We are Brahmin. You were not brought. You were not born Brahmin. Therefore, only Brahmins can do Brahmin things like charge un-Brahmins a whole lot of money for a funeral. Right, okay? right. Only funerals <laughs> can be done by Brahmins. Right. All right. Just like Making only funerals in America yeah. have to be done by preachers. Right. 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 Except right. anybody can be a preacher. All he has to do is be a good liar. Within Brahmanism, they've got only one lie. And that lie is we are Brahmins and only we can do it. Here's how that comes about then. The Brahmins are Brahmins because they were born Brahmin and they were born Brahmin because they must have been somehow good in the past. To where you are not right. born Brahmin, that means that somehow you were not quite so good in the past and therefore you were born at a lower level. This is where that stuff got started. It was a status symbol and it was a money maker right from the get go. Right. So the people that are that are born into bad karmic circumstances, you must have done something to have warranted mm -hmm. this particular. It's all order. your fault. Right. OK, this right. is, in fact, the same concept with a different language to it as original sin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. OK, right. that something happened way deep, dark in your past and now you're screwed. And not only that, but you need help. You need either the ceremonies or the prayers of the Brahmins. Or if you're in someplace else, you need to be saved. Mm -hmm. 
by us, <laughs> not by them, <laughs> but by, by, by them, by them. Yeah. No, they say you need to be saved. You've got to come to our creek. Right, right. Take a bath in cold, dirty water mm-hmm. in your clothing. <laughs> vote for Donald Trump and thou shalt be saved. Right. <laughs> oh, and pay some money <laughs> and pay right. some money. It'll get you there faster if you. <laughs> Right. Okay, so that's right. where all of this came from, mm-hmm. and that it's done worldwide under the ideas or the guise that there is something inside of each human being that is controllable by some magic entity like a common machine in the sky or some god or uh, something like that. Now, you can see how ignorant humans kind of got that idea of personalizing everything that when we were in children we personalize our toys we give our teddy bears names oscar mm-hmm. or something right we personalize things when the little boy is playing with his truck little truck like this and he goes zoom 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 in his mind that's a real truck okay so mm-hmm. children we grow, we grow up in a fantasy world because the world that we grow up is so ignorant that we have to make up a bunch of stuff. We don't understand things, and so we will see things wrongly. And that gives rise then to be, uh, for humans to be susceptible to older people who will lie to them, and we believe it. Okay? So this, and here's the reason also when uh, the lie is told that, oh, if you join our church, give us your money and do this, that, and the other thing, then you can get a do-over. This life sucks, but next time we'll be okay. Right. Right. Okay. So it's uh, a promise for the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, either the next life or heaven after you die or something like that. But you can see that built right into the culture, too, in the sense of, okay, Billy, learn your ABCs, do your one, two, threes. You're in the first grade now. And when you get a year's done of this, you guess what? You can go to this great big heaven in the sky called second grade. Right, right. And when you're in second grade, then the then the third, you know. Okay, and so it's always promise of the future and promise of the future. And so the guy now eventually graduates from high school. Now he's got to go to college. He gets into college. He gets his bachelor's degree. Now there's graduate school or whatever. But eventually we get the job. And to nowhere is any of those next steps heaven. We never get our reward. We are always always going from one disappointment to the next disappointment to the next disappointment, and we never got what we were promised. Right. And this drives this whole chain of becoming, right? It's always, Always I will be, I will be, I will be, be. I will be, exactly. Yes, Yes, right. right. So within within the context of, of Buddhism, of course, within right view, there's the statement of, you know, the mundane right view. There's the statement of there is karma, there are beings born spontaneously. Is this basically maybe a way of of the Buddha laying out the fact that compared to the super mundane view, 
he was teaching these teachings to people that were already familiar with Hinduism, right? So this yes. would fit into their worldview. So this, so in some ways, karma, or in all ways, karma was a, a cultural carryover, not the, 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 the exactly. true teaching, now, right? Look at something else. In, mm -hmm. in fact, that the Buddha was making, uh, you just made a reference, by the way, to Sutra number 117 in the Great 40 and uh, Ordinary Right View. There's more to it than that that we need to look at to get an understanding. And that is, is that ordinary right view is basically marching orders for culture. Mm -hmm. It's marching orders for our society in the sense that if 100% of the people had 100% wrong view 100% of the time, we wouldn't have a culture. Mm -hmm. We would have one dead warlord after another because his lieutenant just shot him. Okay. <laughs> it's conventional in the conventional mechanics. This is how, you know. No, actually, it's, yeah, it's ultimately conventional in the sense of Darwinism of the dog eat dog world, or in our case, cannibalism. Right. Animals eating animals. Okay. Eating right. each other. So. Um, we had, we would have a chaos. Okay. Mm -hmm. How did the very, very first human ever convince the very second human to do what he was told to do? <laughs> Force. Exactly. <laughs> this is exactly what the first, uh, um, or let us say ordinary right view is based upon force. Hmm. If there is no force uh, uh, that's useful, then everyone will hold a wrong view. I generally talk about it from uh, from the perspective of that wrong view has a catchphrase or a motto. That phrase is, I can get away with it. I can get away with anything. Right. right. Okay, I can kill cattle on this side of the river and come kill them on this side of the river. Nobody's going to do anything. Or I can drive by and shoot my gun and, and kill some child on the pavement and go off and I'll get away with it. Okay, this is the whole idea. But basically, uh, it's based in the ignorance of the person is really not getting away with anything because he was by his own desires and his own ignorance forced into doing that despicable act. But he wanted to do it because of his desires. Okay, so it was ignorant desire that forced him into it, and he thinks he's free to do it, but he's not free from doing it. Right, and this loops back into the agency question, right? About sort of what's driving the, as you might call it, the exactly. human machine, right? The mind machine. So, so from that point of view, if we if we take that as the example when it comes to the inclination toward Nibbana, the inclination toward liberation, um, is that, would you, would you be able to, to characterize it in such a way of saying that the inclination toward liberation is uh, maybe a truer, a truer or more natural state for the mind? So it's, in other words, when it drops these, as you call them, so the force of delusion, right? The force of aversion, the force of whatever that's compelling someone to do the wrong action. When mm -hmm. they when they abandon those the grasping of those things, is that 
essentially the mind in its natural state is that the if you get what i'm saying when you stop yes. fueling the machine liberation is the natural result the compassion is the natural result when you've stopped is is that essentially how you'd yes absolutely and not only that but the point that you're making is integral with the buddhist teaching in so many different places okay even the definition of the word nibbana points in that direction here's how the word nibbana points in that direction is because nibbana is known as the unconditioned mm -hmm. and that uh it also has to do with the quality of coolness in the sense that a barking dog a wild dog is barking 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 he's hot but if the dog stops barking and lays down on the porch and takes a nap, now the dog is nibbana. Now he's cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you uh, have food in the pot or in the oven cooking, the heat of the fire makes it hot. It cooks the food. But as soon as the food comes out of the oven, um like a pizza pie this happens sometimes that people uh at the restaurant they get their pizza pie they take a bite of it and they burn the inside of their mouth especially the cheese yes. on the <laughs> mouth okay so the, the pizza needs to nibbana and it nibbanas because it's no longer being conditioned by the heat of the oven mm -hmm. Okay, now Western mentality, when they hear that concept of Nirvana being unconditioned, they get the idea that it's unconditionable. There's a complete difference between now, currently unconditioned, and unconditionability means that it cannot possibly be conditioned. And this is not the right way of looking at it, that, that Nirvana is when things are unconditioned. Right. Right. Uh, from that from that framework or that point of view, I was wondering if you could touch upon briefly. So we just spoke about how essentially when when the grasping is given up, when you know this this attempt to fulfill the, the future looking desires or the aversion, whatever, when those are abandoned, there's the natural letting go and there's Nibbana. Right. But uh, I suppose my question would be how it, from that from that framework, how did the grasping arise in the first place? How did this? Uh, how did this first chain of becoming? Did, or is this something that the Buddha just refused to comment on because it's not worth speculating about? Well, actually, you can see that. You can see it in technology. Over the course of your lifetime, automobile manufacturers have made their automobiles smarter and smarter. Laptops have been around since, gosh, the 1980s. But laptops nowadays are nothing like they were in the old days. Okay. Right. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the kind of uh, laptop that would cost $2,000, $3,000 in 1995, if they manufactured such a poor piece of equipment, it would be uh, sold for $25 now. Okay, right. here's where I'm going with this. And that <laughs> I, is, is that things get started and build up. 
we start out as children mm. and we build up. When we start out as children, we start out at a very low basic level. A basic, uh, let us say, a tender infant doesn't even know correctly how to manipulate his hands. They put up a mobile and the, and the baby will do this kind of thing, but mm -hmm. rasp, rasping, reaching, touching, this kind of behavior, tender infants don't even have that. They're that ignorant. Right. It's a spontaneous sort of action right. that then has a feedback loop, right? It's processed. But it does it... have a feedback loop. Okay. Right. So right. over time, there is an educational process. Unfortunately, many, many lessons are learned ignorantly and then stored as natural outcomes and used over and over again when, in fact, they need to be revisited, they need to be tweaked. Right. Okay, just because in 1995 I had a laptop then doesn't mean that I am doomed to use that particular laptop or at least nothing better than that now. Mm -hmm. Just like when you were three years old, you were doomed to know the knowledge of a three-year-old. Right. But right. most of the adults that vote for Donald Trump are still doomed to live like <laughs> three-year-olds. Well, you, you triggered a very <laughs> funny feeling when you mentioned even the first sentence about this idea of, of technology and the, and the advancement because, you you know, it, it triggered within my mind, right, this a sort of fractal picture of this development, right? You can even look at, for example, scientists are still baffled how the first life came to be animated and, and sort of, you know, when we look at the development of a planet and it's a totally blind process, right? It's just things happening in such a way that, for example, this, this bundle of organic matter manages to, to grasp onto something, this bundle of, and over time, right, there's a, the, the consciousness of an it organism. It all has to do with valence electrons. When you know you yes. don't have enough, <laughs> you have too many, then things fit together and there's right. no end to it. There's just right. no end to these molecules sticking together. And it goes all the way down the line, right? All the way down right. to, we're going to see it probably with artificial intelligence, right? Where eventually we'll have this self-referencing consciousness that will be able to develop a self-construct eventually. Let's Presumably. not go into the area of AI right now because AI has something that we don't have. Do you think it's... Um, it we'll always have it. It's called an off switch. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. AI right. always has an off switch. Right. It has to have energy. But guess what? You've got a kind of an off switch. It just operates differently. In the sense that if you don't have enough energy, then you will wind down and, and die. However, you know that, and it's part of the built-in system that you have, that you're, you have a self-preservation instinct built in right. to make sure that you get the resources that you need. AI yeah. is trying to solve a particular function, and all of its attention is on this function, and it does not have self-referencing about the machine because that AI software is going to run on almost any hardware. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, and, so there's still and, the, yeah, there's the biological self-preservation system that runs, you could say, most of the human experience, right, if, if there's not sort of attention given to that aspect.
There's no reason to do that. What we want, in fact, is for the robots to interactive, interact with humans the way humans want the robots to interact. And right. if the robot doesn't interact the way that the human wants, he just sends it back to the factory. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, if you could briefly, this it's kind of a good segue to the next thing I was was wondering about. One of Buddha Dasa's um, perhaps most controversial statements, right? And, and this this is not the controversial part that that Jati refers to to birth, not to rebirth, right? That this term is just birth, birth. It's not a, I, a description of Vikram Buddha Dasa's controversy. No, <clears throat> uh, I meant I, I meant the controversy. <laughs> Well, let's let's just call it then the whole bundle, right, of controversy about the concept of, you know, I remember that Buddha Dasa had famously declared that he, in no rebirth, right, that rebirth was this concept that was future driven. It was driven on the concept of of lives continuing, you know, that birth comes once, death comes once. I was wondering if you could if if you could elaborate on either your or his or both positions about the idea of um, is there a is there such thing again this is probably speculative here but but beyond death is there a continuation of of awareness in any form because obviously the human mind struggles with the, the concept of void right we can't wrap yeah. our heads around the idea of no sensory are you, are, are you planning on dying in the next 24 hours <laughs> uh, <laughs> I plan on dying at some point hopefully not in the next 24 hours but it, you know, obviously, it's a perennial question for human okay. beings. Well, if that's you very... get twenty-four hours notice, call me and we'll discuss <laughs> it then. Okay, I'll put that on my my list if I ever get notice. <laughs> okay. For now, I'll I'll focus as you're probably suggesting here. I'll focus on the next immediate moments of my life as they're coming and going. <laughs> now we're getting someplace. You see. <laughs> if in fact. All of life's troubles have to do with the fact that the individual is having unwholesome thoughts in his mind, regardless of whatever they are in this present moment. Then the only time that we're going to be able to do something about those unwholesome thoughts in the mind is in this present moment. Yes. Not, yes. not next week. Not even 24 hours from now. Or 80 so, years. <laughs> or 80 years, or how about three, th 300 or 3,000 years? Right. Okay. So here's the point about the actual teachings of the Buddha is, is that it's about immediate. It's about right now. Uh, and um, that means that the past and the future even the immediate past and the immediate future is still past in the future. Midterm past and midterm future is still past and future, and very, very long-term past and very long-term future is still past and future. Mm -hmm. That's the right. important point is to recognize that. Um, here's an example of that. Out of Sutra number 38, um, Sati, son of a fisherman, uh, thought that it is consciousness that runs in circles from this life to this place to the next, uh, experiencing the results of good and bad actions. Now, actually, in the Pali, 
there is a polyphrase that it can be translated directly as here and there is I think it's kata kata. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go experiences here and there. That means that a young man can have a particular life, let us say, in New York City. And then he takes a job and he goes to Chicago. And he's now living in Chicago. Is he the same person in Chicago that he was in New York? Presumably, but it depends, I guess, on what level we're talking. I mean, I'm talking about real. I'm not talking about the clinging that humans do that mom would say, oh, he's he's my son. He was my son in New York and he was my son in in Chicago. It's like a river. He's a little bit differently than that. His entire day's activities are completely changed now. The people he's around have completely changed now. The things that he used to think about, in fact, he probably dumped half of his belongings in New York because it was too much trouble to bring them with him. Okay, so now he's got a whole bunch of new products. He's got a new house to live in. All kinds of things have changed. Right. Right. So there's going to be some things that are different and some things that have changed and some things are going to remain the same. Mm -hmm. But we can't just grab hold of the things that remain the same and say, oh, that's him. Right. And if we investigated on a maybe a finer. He got while he was in New York, he was extremely frustrated with his boss. Now in Chicago, he's not frustrated. Okay. Right. Frustration or non-frustration, that's a different. Okay, so here's the thing now. If in fact um the man who moved from New York to Chicago gives up his past and no longer remembers or thinks about or pines for or wants New York and he is completely sufficient to live in Chicago, isn't that exactly the same thing as, in fact, New York was a past life 2,000 years ago or maybe even 50 years ago? Right. It's the same thing. It doesn't matter, okay? The Mm -hmm. point is, is that things happen new. Everything is reborn. Mm -hmm. And the word jati, by the way, does not mean birth exactly the way that the English language word means birth. And in fact, even the English language word for birth doesn't mean birth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, it means a hammock or it means a bay. A birth is where a ship parks. (laughs) Right. Okay, and when it does, it's in its womb. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we we could say the birth of the blues. The birth of a nation. Mm-hmm. You hear that used all the time like that. And so um, uh, uh, let us say, but in an old book, if you read the word birth in an old book, then you have to only have one definition for it rather than having to figure out from a choice of a wide variety of definitions and what was it meant at that particular time. That in fact, the word jati does not mean birth at all. What it means is start. Just mm-hmm. like the word birth often means the word to start, like the birth of the blues, the birth of a nation, mm-hmm. right? That's the start of it. So why does Bhikkhu Bodhi and the other translators translate the word jati as the word rebirth, absolutely intentionally placing magic in a word that 
originally had no magic in it. The answer to that is because that's where the original uh, translators did it. Mm -hmm. Ivy Homer, Riles Davies, and, and a, a, a few others. Um, there was a German. This was all done from 1880 to about 1920 uh, in the formation of the Polytech Society, where these were call, uh, scholars, university professor kind of linguistics. And they got a hold of the polycanon, and but they didn't. All they had was the polycanon. They had no uh, no understanding of what it meant, nor did they know the language. And so all of that had to be figured out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, if you let's let's do it this way. Imagine that uh, that there was a German uh, research professor scientist who was doing stuff in physics at the, at the top level, beyond PhD level physics, okay? And he's writing it in German. He's going to make a bomb, <laughs> all right? <laughs> and the Americans want that document. Mm -hmm. Who are they going to get to translate it? Are they going to just take it to some college professor who has uh, um, uh, seen a bit of German? Probably not. Are they going to take it to someone who is really, really skilled in German? In fact, German's his native language, and he's also quite excellent in English. We would hope. <laughs> or do you want someone who actually is a physicist, who understands what's being translated? Right, and knows and the if, languages. <laughs> and Hopefully. so if you have all three, if you have someone who is excellent in German, excellent in English, and excellent in physics, now you might get a decent translation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We haven't had that yet from the polycanon. Right. All we have are people who are experts in English. Stop. Right. <laughs> I mean, we stop. It's a lot of words, right? We have obviously a lot of people assume entire that language. Dukkha is solely suffering, right? That this is the only translation, that there's not maybe other How ways to. Christian of them. Exactly, right? It's so That's what I'm thinking, too, is that there's a lot of this cultural baggage that comes along with the way that we try to make analogs of these words, right? That mm -hmm. may not have existed, probably didn't exist with the original Buddhist uh, intention of them when they were recorded, right? Right. And, and, and so... Yeah. We have a Christianized magical view of the teachings of the Buddha right from the get go. Mm -hmm. Now, here's something that we could say in this regard, and that is, is that Christianity is Christianity because of the story of Christianity, the story of who Jesus was, the story of his birth, his life and his death and who he right. was. And if you take that story away from Christianity, what has Christianity got left? The bones of uh, a monotheistic religion, just, you know, that there's a creator figure, which is obviously shared by many other traditions. No, that's part of the story. Take that story out, too. <laughs> well, uh, you take the whole creator out, you're saying, if you take that out? Yeah, take the story out, right. Well, you probably get reality, five, I seven. suppose. <laughs> Well, no, but within Christianity, there's no reality then because it's all story. Absolutely. Right. 
Okay. By reality, in I mean the a, sense that yeah. the answer to yeah. that would be what would be left if you took the story out of it would be the teachings of Jesus. Right. So you're saying? Oh, I see. Okay. I thought you were saying to remove entirely Jesus as a as a no, figure not from return, it. Not remove Jesus. You're saying to remove the narrative. Of, Right, the whole narrative with the creator and everything. Right, so you'd basically get something extremely similar to Buddhism about compassion and about removing the self uh, interest from things and removing uh -huh. right. everything about what needs to be done in order to get to a heaven without the concept of heaven. And guess what? Jesus wasn't around long enough. The people that he dealt with were not very smart, and he complained about them. In yeah. the sense they don't get it, <laughs> mm -hmm. which means that Jesus then died and nobody ever got it because Jesus did not present them with a method or a way or an intellectual framework. Mm -hmm. He just gave parables and just went around doing good and stories began to grow. Right. Okay. Now, let's look at that in the same concept of the Buddha. There is a lot of stories about the Buddha. There's a lot of magical stories out there. But if you took all the stories away from the Buddha, even take the Buddha out of it, what do you have left is the teachings of the Buddha, including the method and the way. Right. The, the, the story is not necessary at all. Right. That in fact, the teachings of the Buddha could be taught and people can get enormous benefit out of it without ever using the name Buddha mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or Asia or anything. Okay, but right. it does because of the historical context and and um, and all of that. So let's let's get back to something that we were talking about originally in in the, uh, this point, um, and and that is is that about uh, noble right view then is that we're going to take care and investigate this particular moment mm -hmm. to where past and future is what ordinary buddhism is about uh and that it is um basically going back to that point about how can mr primitive a get Mr. Primitive B to do anything that Mr. Primitive A wants to do, okay? Uh, your answer was force. In other words, uh, the, uh, the group of people that we will just for um, humor's sake call the authoritarians and those that have wrong view, we'll call them the kids, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay? And the kids think that they can get away with anything and the authority says, no, you can't. We've got rules here at this place of authority, like a school or a church or a society, whatever authorities, you know, they're there. And the kids come back and says, I can do anything I want to. I can get away with it. I can cheat on my taxes. I don't have to do what you tell me to do. And the authority says, yes, you do have to do what we're trying to do here. We're trying to build a pyramid, you know. The king's wanting to go to heaven, and he needs his pyramid. And without you, he can't make that pyramid. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a really tough life and death if you don't help us do that pyramid. 
Okay. So basically what happens then is, is that there are several kinds of forces that are applied by the authorities on the kids. The first one is direct force. Mm-hmm. Then we bring in the indirect force. Cause why? Because the authority can't be standing there with his whip or his army or right. his cops all the time. We're going to go hire a priest. Mm-hmm. And what is the priest going to do? The priest is going to say to the kids, you can't get away with it. Even if you can get away with it from the authority here, we've got a magic Jesus who's going to bust your ass if you don't do what this authority (laughs) tells you to do. And this is where the magic story comes in. Magic is that which uh, is an unidentified authority that will punish you for doing for going against the things that real authorities told you don't do. Right, right. Now we do that with kids. In fact, in Buddhist cultures, we still have the five precepts. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Basically, what the authorities are doing is they're trying to do the kids a favor. They're trying to teach the kids. Um, the distinction between right and wrong, according to the authorities. But the kids are too stupid to see the distinction between right and wrong. So the authorities have to add an extra weight on the scale. They have to put an extra thumb on the scale in the sense that it's not just happenstance or just sequence of events or cause and effect that's going to guide the comma. We're going to put our thumb on the scale by telling you, oh, no, we've got a story here. And the story is, if you do badly, you're going to go to hell. Right. Um, And so it basically is a control mechanism to control people mm -hmm. while the 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 boss with the whip is not standing there. Right. In other words, we can make the slaves work in the field without having the bullwhip in the field with the slaves. The slaves will go out into the field and till the harvest all on their own, give all the products to the boss, yep. just so that the boss won't beat them. Uh, as a maybe a very sloppy analogy here, what I was thinking about, right, is of course, so the Buddha spoke about some of these views as being right view, but the mundane form of right view, right? So the one that if lay people back then, they didn't, they didn't know anything about any of these let's say they didn't do any kind of formal practice. They didn't actually investigate any, the nature of the mind, but these are the things they're told are good to do. They're going to do them. Um, in some way, it makes me think almost of how, if one owns a dog, right? One has a pet dog and there's a road nearby. One might put up an electric fence for the dog so that the dog doesn't need to know because the dog may not understand, right? That this is, that there's a road there and cars go down it. But obviously it's done in some ways for the better interest of the dog, even though it's not an accurate reflection of, uh, again, this falls flat because there's the the sense that there's this lurking danger there. But um, essentially, right, if the Buddha had this 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 whole picture of the mind and how it functioned and the grasping and, you know, the nature of the hindrances and everything, and he was trying to teach other beings to get closer to the state of their natural uh, their natural mind or natural liberation it would only make sense, right, that you would give the most rudimentary rules for them to follow, even if they don't know why. If you tell them this is good, this leads to good things, they're more inclined to get closer 
to if it's benign then did uh this teacher will um assist the, the students to do things that are in their best self-interest right but normally uh the authorities are uh, do not have the the self-interest of the the kids they right. have their own best self-interest in it mind. It can be used both ways, right, to lead to a certain end, even, mm. you know, so that the people themselves that are being maybe manipulated may not know what that end is, but of course it can be framed as this is good, this is bad, right? There's sort of a, and of course in the super mundane right view, then the things would be, as you said in an earlier conversation, you said there's no need for the authority to catch you because you catch yourself. You are doing it because you are, you are, you know, inwardly aware of what's right and wrong based on your own knowledge of, of being or whatever you'd like to call it, right? You have this. That's exactly correct, but there's a, <clears throat> there is a hook to it mm -hmm. in the sense that the authorities want to teach you what is right and what is wrong so that they don't have to stand there over you all the time to make <laughs> sure that you know what is right and what is wrong and do it according to to them yeah um so um <clears throat> there is a mechanism that is built in with each one of us that eric Byrne calls the parent ego state mm -hmm. and that sigmund Freud calls it the super ego and the buddha calls it sila bata paramasa and that it's instinctual in the sense that um, if you do something when you're a little kid and you get really hurt, then you're going to remember that and you're not going to do it anymore. Right. Okay. This is a self-preservation mechanism. And so in that regard, this super ego that we're talking about is instinctual. That in fact, the instinct that it comes from uh, can be traced right into the territory, excuse me, the herding instinct or our nesting instinct in the sense that if you're going to join this herd, if you're going to join this nest, then you have to abide by the rules of this nest. If mm -hmm. you can't abide by the rules of this nest, then you have to leave the nest. And if you leave the nest, it may be dangerous out there. And so this uh, and and it uh, it's so old in the sense of primitive that it goes all the way back to fish. It's not just sheep and goats who have this um, herding instinct. Even schools of fish will school together for self-preservation, right? So in that regard, you do what you were told to do because it's part of the self-preservation instinct. In other words, if you go against what the authority uh, wants the authority may kill you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or at least he's going to threaten to kill you, and to bringing up fear then of death. Okay, so this is what a lot of that is going on about is is that it is instinctual behavior for us to automatically over time as children build up experiences in a form of rules or to-do list or thou shalt do this and uh you can call it precepts commandments mm -hmm. or whatever now in the old days of psychology when i was uh in psychology the uh the term that they used was tape uh playing the old tapes that's because you know everybody back then they had cassettes and eight tracks and whatnot like that for for music yep. recording 
And so we play these old tapes in our heads about how things ought to be, how things mm -hmm. should be, how things would be. This is actually then the ordinary right view that we have taken on and put in and plugged into shape that then runs our lives when we're adults. And we brought those things in based upon the feeling. In other words, if mom yelled at little uh, Johnny for um, uh, drawing pictures on the wall, mm -hmm. he is going to remember that and that's going to affect him later in life. Right. To right. the point that he may, in fact, hate graffiti so much that he actually spends quite a lot of money on paint to paint up the, uh, the sides of buildings where other people have put graffiti simply because he's hanging yeah. on to that thing that he got fucked at when he was a kid when he drew on the wall. This right. is how the human mind works. So, it's, so, so it, yeah. But he's not quite aware, of, even if he remembers that. That's not a big enough hit for him to say, therefore, I, because I recognize why I'm going and, and painting over everybody else's wall art, that means that maybe now I can stop doing it. That takes even a deeper level of insight. Right. right. So, okay. so obviously there have, there have been many beings, you know, throughout, let's say, human civilization or whatever that, that have had degrees of wisdom about the truth of their own mind or about the truth of their being or whatever. And they've tried in many ways to teach people benevolently about what's right and wrong. But it seems mm. that the, the real problem that we face is that this, this giant ball of what we call right view in, let's say, the, the traditional Western context is it, we've kind of, you know, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater in some ways when we say, oh, you know, all, all values are bad, right? Because obviously some of those values that we've packaged into the, you know, the unconscious or the, you know, the parent ego structure, whatever, clearly are things that have helped us to be able to civilize it, you know, to have a civilization that we can communicate in and things like that. But right. it, you doesn't know, so, every child, doesn't right. every child want to throw the shackles of authoritarianism <laughs> off so that they can revert back to wrong view and get away with it? Right, right. So in some ways we need this, we need this balance of having, we need to find a way to actually confer the right way of thinking about the world that isn't driven by force, right? It's driven by, hey, look at how pleasant and full of ease it is to live in this more, you know, wholesome, connected way instead of, you know, if you don't, if you don't do this right, we're going to lock you in the slammer, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> the whole mm -hmm. nine yards, right? So, so that sort of seems to be the problem is that obviously we grow up quite wary of things that are called, you know, cultural values or moral values, because we often see it as being the whole thing is this giant web of kind of enslavement. But really a lot of it, uh, some of it at least, was obviously packaged into that to not only help people survive, but to help them get closer to the principles that we could aspire to, right? If we actually had the right circumstances and conditions in our lives to put in that practice and if right. that makes sense, right? It does. It does exactly so. What you find uh, that the sum total of our culture is, is a dialogue between wrong view and ordinary right view. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or another way of saying it is, is that you, uh, it's a dialogue or a situation between the kids and the parents, or worse still, between the prisoners and the prison guards. Right. Okay. Except that 
in the case of the prison and the prison guards, guess what? Everybody's in prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everybody's in prison, even the authorities, because right. if the authorities are not there in the prison to guard the prison, to make sure that the ones who have wronged you are behaving themselves, because the authorities have got all this work to do to keep those guys in line, <laughs> they're imprisoned also. Right. I had a buddy who was a prison guard who said the exact same thing. He said, in prison, everybody's in prison. Because that was why he got out of it. He said it was just this huge, you know, it, the suffering just runs your life when you're confronted with that day in and day out. This reality of what's going on, you know, not only between the guards and the prisoners, but the prisoners between themselves the authorities to the prison guards who are doing the grunt work, you know, and it's, uh, it's. And so it's always this and this, even when a new prisoner comes in, he has mm -hmm. to come in under all of the other prisoners and under all of the guards. Right. Okay. Right. And so it always is a pecking order. Basically what we talk about in the sense of the Sangha is the Sangha is like any organization without any pecking order. Mm -hmm. That we're all in this together. Right. And an attempt to actually actualize this idea of, of having right view and values without the, the stick <clears throat> constantly striking. Right. So exactly. it's, it is, it's a benevolent way of trying to organize, you know, a microcosm of a society, right? It's a mm -hmm. group of people. Now let's get back a little bit to the concept of, 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 let us use the word rebirth. Sure, sure. Because um, it's actually quite valuable for students of Buddhism to really understand what the, uh, e let us say, the medieval definition of rebirth. It's very handy to do that. We can start off at the top level, or the worst possibility would be a reincarnation in the sense that a being takes uh, this body dies and that being goes on and he uh, then eventually takes on a different kind of body depending upon the woeful state that he went into an animal body or uh, being born in hell I don't know what a hell body is but uh, <laughs> um, in any case um, <clears throat> You have these various modes of being, and one would be that he can come back and become an, a human being again. Huh? <clears throat> this is the whole concept of a permanent self that is everlasting. It is eternal, or if it's not eternal, then it is semi-eternal in the sense that eventually it may come to, to a death. But that's so far off into the future that we can pretend that uh, semi-eternalism and eternalism are, are basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. Now, there's another concept, and that concept is, is that upon the eradication and the breakup and the death of the body, the existing being is annihilated. This is called annihilationism, and this is basically what you have as modern-day atheism, that right. I am what I am, and that's all that I am until I die, and then I'm not. And then it's just blackness forever. 
and there's nothing. Well, we don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, the agnostic right. is, is I don't know. The uh, uh, the atheist is is least taking the position that uh, no evidence. Right. You see, right. that's an important quality that we can take on the side note, and that is, is that does lack of evidence uh, count as evidence of absence? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? I don't know of any scientific experiment or any court of law that will uh, say that lack of evidence is evidence of absence. That in science, lack of evidence means you've got to do the experiment over again. You've got to tweak it. You've got to keep going with it. In court, if, if the prosecutor walks in and says, Your Honor, this guy's guilty. I know he's guilty. We've seen all the evidence, but right now we don't have any. <laughs> There's no evidence that this guy did what he said he did, but please punish him for it anyway. What's the right. judge going to do? He's going to throw <laughs> it out of court. Well, why don't we as good, proper magistrates of our own lives throw out those things that have no evidence? Right. Ah, but the, uh, the promise of that evidence is sufficient. No evidence of a heaven, but promise of a heaven. Okay, and so we. Uh, this is where desire or lust comes in, in the sense of wanting things that we don't have. Well, wanting things that we don't have, almost always uh, the things that we want that we don't have, are done to make our life easier or better somehow, and maybe even that this is like in the, in the United States, guns. Why do people buy guns? What's the number one thing that they will say, the reason why they buy a gun? Uh, Self-defense. Exactly. In other words, fear. Right, right. Materialism is an instinct, and we instinctually attract materialism because those material goods are designed to keep us safe and secure. In other words, um, materialism is an instinct in the service of the self-preservation instinct. Mm -hmm. And so we gather things up. Some of the things that we gather would be like a house. Why do we have a house? Why do people live in a house? It's all survival. You know, self-preservation. Survival, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So all of this stuff works out in survival. Therefore, when we start adding concepts, we add concepts for that same reason as survival. This is what we call spiritual materialism, or actually just it's, it's a uh, non-material materialism, is when we gather up identities, who we are, uh, we grasp and we cling to political parties, nations, um, <clears throat> religions, mm -hmm. belief systems, we cling to these because it gives us a sense of security and well-being. Right. Okay, they're false because they don't give a sense of well-being. For instance, someone says, oh, I'm a Democrat because I think the Democrats will do a better job than the Republicans. Fine. Then that means if you watch the news about the Democrats, anytime that something happens good for the Democrats, you'll feel good. And anything that happens that's, uh, that's bad for the Democrats, you'll feel bad. And so now you're on an emotional roller coaster just because you've attached to somebody else's wagon. And that wagon goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And you have to go up and down, too. 
Sorry, right. folks. Let the Democrat Party do what it's going to do. It's not my party. Therefore, I don't have to go up and down with my party. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is how we begin to see that attachments to organizations, rights, rules, rituals, concepts, materialism, we do that. And we also build up a set of rules about how we should live. Mm-hmm. And these are all then the basic uh, instincts of self-preservation and uh, sensual um input or sensual desire, which would be materialism. And then the nesting instinct is uh, um, the instinct of uh, getting along, going along, getting along, doing what you're told to do, etc. the nesting instinct. And then the last one is the territorial instinct is our attachments to concepts. Now, the dogs, they have real territory. You're talking about the wire for the dog to keep. Well, these dogs, they know where their territorial boundaries are. They've got that all sussed out. I don't have to go tell them to don't go there. They stop at the road. Uh, But humans, we uh, don't have physical territory so much anymore as we have intellectual territories. Mm -hmm. And an an intellectual territory would be like uh, all Uh, You could say each different thing that you know in the sense of a subject then would be a different territory. For instance, mathematics would be a territory, but inside that territory is a lot of little sub-territories, et cetera, like this. And so the territorial stuff uh, for the human is quite vast. Right. But we do get attached to our territory in the sense of my political party, my company, my job, my... um, uh, political beliefs, mm-hmm. all of this kind of stuff defines who we are and that the hallmark of that territorial instinct is our nest, us versus them, the outsiders. And so what we do to define our territory means that our territory is not that territory out there. Right. 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 So we brought these boundaries in the mind, and this is all done instinctually, ignorantly, instinctually. Mm-hmm. So now it's time for us to start unraveling all of those belief systems, right. because almost always those belief systems are causing us trouble. For instance, if you were a Democrat and you're laying in bed, you'll think of, well, what happened today? Oh, I've got to go to NBC or oh, I've got to go, you know. But if we lay in the bed and we say, Democrats, yeah, I guess they're okay today. I don't Mm -hmm. need them. They don't need (laughs) me. And I don't have to go do anything. I don't have to check on the news. Right. The conceptual can verge, obviously, into the material on that level, right, with the mind matter thing where – Okay, the mere idea of something can spark a real, as you were mentioning, right, about the idea of, uh, of, of uprooting or weeding out the, the harmful thoughts, the aversive thoughts, these things like that, because they also have real consequences, right? Even like thinking of a spider or snake can trigger the same reaction, you know, chemically that we'd have for a real spider or snake, right? And mm-hmm. it goes all the way down the spectrum with, with all kinds of, you know, anything from the idea of, you know, my country or, you know, my religion, obviously all the way through with, you know, the idea of debt, the idea of losing a home, the idea of, you know, so 
obviously some of them can have we stayed terrified then by our ideas right our ideas any individual who has ideas is terrified by those ideas right and we can play with them (laughs) back in the 1970s when i was getting into psychology and and this kind of stuff it eventually dawned on me as a computer scientist in those days that i can dream up concoct or mentally design many many hundreds of different programs or databases or all kinds of stuff and yet i cannot manufacture any of those things that my uh my mental um uh manufacturing putting together uh uh, the conceptualized mind is way way ahead of reality in many ways for instance you talked about ai guess what ai is nowhere near what people in general think it is why because all they think it is is has to do with fear of it Right. Or dream wild dreams about what it could do or, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. And right. So people, some people are going wild with how marvelous their wild dreams are and other people are going wild with how terrible it's going to be. <laughs> but either way, it's like this imaginary drug, right? It's just. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Which means now that these <laughs> concepts mm-hmm. out of the uh, out of the uh, territorial instinct these rights rules rituals laws ways of doing things which we could actually call critical mind and that critical mind basically is the authority of that uh right uh ordinary view right ordinary view is a set of laws rights rituals the way things that should be in order to have a perfect world except that they never get a perfect world Right. There's no such thing as the perfect world. <laughs> right, because then, of course, um, and, trying to impose it on other people leads right, to... Right, exactly. You were just right. about to get, You just made my next point. And the reason for that <laughs> is because the authorities think their perfect world is being able to control all of those other people who have wrong views. <laughs> right. And all of the wrong view people, they think <laughs> their perfect world is to get rid of those authorities. Yeah, because when you set up this conceptual divide, right, of like, okay, so if somebody sits down and says, right, I've put on paper the the 10 rules of the world, the 10 commandments of the world, and somebody says, well, number nine, maybe we could tweak it this way. Obviously, if you feel that your way is the true way, you have, you in your mind, you have no other choice but to crush that opposition to your perfect commandment, right? Because otherwise, you're letting this, whatever, evildoer corrupt your system, right? It's sort of a... You've set up your boundary. People come over your boundary, but you made the boundary, right? So you're defending mm-hmm. this boundary that you've set up for yourself, <laughs> right? It's a uh, so I. <laughs> this is really fascinating stuff, and I appreciate it. Uh, I just had two uh, maybe brief questions about very like practical um, practice related questions. So I've obviously been practicing for this last week on a very stripped down version of meditation compared to what I used to do, which is the method that you were encouraging here with with just staying with the pleasant feelings lengthening the breath um and i had the two questions uh the first of which was um sometimes when i'm doing this this practice about 20 maybe 15 20 minutes in i get to a point where the pit uh, the pity and the sukha build to a very very strong level 
there's a, you know, the whole body is sort of radiating with these feelings. The trouble is that at that point, I start to feel that um, the breath is becoming sort of the abdomen becomes sort of tense. There's a tension that sort of is building and it becomes um, taking longer breaths feels um, either difficult or very rigid with, with the breathing. And I was wondering if, if that's normal and if it's not, then uh, what you would recommend to work with that? Well, it would be if you're actually breathing, uh, let us say in a new way, Mm -hmm. then um, you're going to be using a few muscles of the body in a new way. Right. Which means that those muscles now need to be exercised in a new way and that there's going to be a certain amount of muscle fatigue with that. Mm -hmm. Part of your job is, is to notice this, to notice what's happening with the body and make the adjustments that you need. And you can make adjustments with the way that you breathe. For instance, you can breathe in a more relaxed way. If you're beginning to see that the relaxed breathing that you have in fact does have a bit of tension to it, then experiment to find a little bit more relaxed way of breathing. Mm -hmm. So you're working with it. uh, It's not rocket science, okay? (laughs) (laughs) It's not. But we have the idea, oh, I must be doing something wrong because I'm feeling (laughs) tension in my long, deep breathing. No, you're doing something wrong because you're beginning to see things that are changing in a way. Right, and so there's this reaction to it. Yeah. Right. Always the not liking is there in the sense of, oh, no, now what's wrong? Right. And the thing is that in that moment, it's it's a very strong feeling of liking. And it's sort of I'm I'm noting as it's going through, I'm noting how pleasurable the whole thing is. Right. Because it, it, you know, reaches this point where, you know, it's, you know, the whole body feels simultaneously very light, very airy but also obviously it's radiating with this pleasure and there's sort of, you know, then the thought creeps in, well, gee, my abdomen's pretty tight. You know, something, something's like, maybe there's some key that I'm not turning. Right. And I guess this is where you're saying, Hey, just be with it and, and work with that sensation as it arises. Right. This is play with it rather than play with it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't work with it. Play with it. Okay, I like I like this idea. And <laughs> related to that topic, I was wondering, you know, um, so I come from when I used to when I used to do this other method of practice, it was primarily staying with the nostril, with the breath at the nostril. Um, and as the meditation went on, you were encouraged to sort of include the sensory data from the environment around you. So trying to to include along with the breath, you know, the whatever sounds are ambient. Uh, whatever feelings are going through the body, mental formations. I was wondering uh, if you if you have a, a kind of a preference for if you think that that is a skillful thing to do, or if you think that there's sort of you know benefit of holding sort of a field of awareness with with anything that comes into it, or if you feel that it's more important to stay kind of exclusively focused on the motion of of the breath and the accompanying pleasurable yeah. feelings. All right. The answer to that is that we were using the breath basically to get out of uh, the sixth sense that we spend most of our time with, which is the thinking mind, the turning mind, the uh, conceptualizing mind. 
And so by watching the breath, we're actually spending quite a number of mind moments now, not thinking and conceptualizing and giving ourselves a hard time, critical thinking and all of that. But we're actually now in the experience of sensual input, in this case, touch. Mm -hmm. As I breathe in and as I breathe out, I can feel all kinds of things in the sense of touch on the body. Now, normally when people are, let us say, in meditation session, they have the eyes closed and they try to find a quiet environment. In fact, I have seen uh, meditation retreats standing in the back of the room or sitting in the back of the room and someone coughs. And it looks like a whack-a-mole machine just went off. You know, this removed from that one. <laughs> yeah. Everybody jumps because of that cough, okay, because it had gotten very, very quiet. Right. But this practice is not for sitting on the floor in a quiet place. This is to get the mind cleaned out so that, in fact, we can be in sensory input because that's the only way you can be here now is in the senses. Right. You can see what's happening right now. You can hear what's happening right now. You can feel the sense of touch. You can feel the sense of the body's posture. You can feel the breeze. You can feel the touch of the cloth. There's so much happening in this present moment by the senses, but we're not generally paying any attention to all of that because we're stuck in this number six sense in the head. Mm -hmm. And so the whole quality is, is then making the shift out of the head or out of uh, conceptualized thinking into uh, the here now of bodily sensations, bodily awareness. And if we can really do that for top quality first, uh, 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 first place or, or whatever like that, once we get able to do that, then we should be able to get up off of the meditation cushion and find our way out of the room and in fact find our way around the day while we're still in that marvelous state that we got ourselves into while we were sitting in seclusion mm -hmm. why because now we're just going to open more of the senses and to be here more in the present moment with the eyes and with the ears and with everything uh, in in the sensual awareness Right. Okay. So this is actually one of the things that we want to do. We actually want to wake up the body. That's exactly how to talk about it. Why do we say it waking up the body is because now we're beginning to pay attention to the body. We're actually getting sensory awareness. Okay. That in fact, on your body right now, there's probably more than one place that itches. Are you aware of any of those places? How can you know? <laughs> <laughs> just down at okay, the left so, ankle <laughs> exactly so you can feel the feet on the floor you can feel the uh the uh the knees you can feel uh the touch of the cloth on the legs you can feel the uh uh the the, the shoulders the the weight of the uh sweater on the shoulders you can feel all of that kind of stuff but we we don't pay attention to that First off, because there is so much sensory awareness, little, little kids, in fact, are almost overwhelmed by the amount of sensory input that they have. 
mm-hmm. that uh, they're looking at, in fact, that the problem with autism is, is that the child uh, who is labeled as autistic merely is having trouble dealing with all of the sensory input that he has. That's why you'll see them in the corner doing this, rocking back and forth, mm-hmm. because there's just too much going on. Right, right. And that the autistic child hasn't learned how to shut that stuff off. Normal kids learn how to shut that stuff down so that they can get more direction because they're not having to deal with so much sensory input. Well, guess what? In that regard, the autistic child, when he grows up, may be better off than the ordinary person because he's not shut down. He's still experiencing his reality of sensory input to where most of us, we've shut it down. We've gone into the head. We're not thinking about it. Right. While the child is doing A, B, C, he's not thinking about his butt hurts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But so, the autistic child is having trouble A, B, C because his butt hurts. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all being jumbled. Uh, so when we're in the when we're in like let's say having an actual session or just you know a dedicated practice time. Um, I, I know that some, you know, some teachers talk, they have, they have differing views about this, right? Some teachers will say that in order to reach the first jhana, somebody has to, um, you know, exclude everything else, right? All other sensory input, except for that, the one sensation that they're focusing People on. People who You're, are talking like that just yeah. simply do not know the definition of the word jhana. They don't know right. what they're talking about. So the it's Buddha an opening, is, right? It's, yeah. it's an opening. It's mm-hmm. not a closing down. It is mm-hmm. definitely an opening that, in fact, it's exactly the opposite of deep meditation that is, seems to be the hallmark or that which Western mentality thinks that because people are sitting in the meditation hall still and quiet, if they're being really good at meditation, that means they're getting more still and more quiet and more still and more quiet and almost to the point that now they're dead. And when they're completely dead sitting there in the meditation hall, now they're practicing meditation correctly because they are so still and they're so quiet that there's nothing going on. Right. This is not what we're practicing (laughs) here. We're practicing to wake up. This is what sati is all about, is to wake up, to wake up into your senses, to wake up and see what's going on, and most uh, uh, specifically, to wake up and see how critical we are of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Making, um, basically, that same argument inside the mind that the authorities were making. In other words, now we have bought that entire uh, set of of uh, uh, archived tapes that we learned from all of our parents, all of our authorities when we were kids, and even the authorities that we um, have now, mm-hmm. that we that's how we live is according to the rules. Right. And we have to make sure that I'm in mind with these rules. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of thou shalt nots and a lot of punishments and a lot of this kind of stuff in here. And we need to change those kind of thoughts from um, unwholesome thoughts of criticism mm-hmm. into wholesome thoughts of nurturing. Right. Is, is there a time? This is uh, the yeah. main thing about the first jhana, is that we have to come out of critical thinking. If the student uh, does not 
and none of the Western Buddhist practices that I know of teach most specifically the very first thing is you have to remove the hindrances from the mind regardless of what your meditation object is. The meditation mm-hmm. object in and of itself is almost irrelevant. In other words, whatever the meditation object is, when I go to the object, that's good. But when I go away from the object, that that's bad. And it doesn't matter where I go to if that's a hindrance from being on this object. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it doesn't matter what so much the object is, but the Buddha gives a, one in the beginning, and that would be the breath because there's extra advantages to have the breath as our object of meditation, but we're not going to keep it that way. That, that in fact, there's a whole lot of objects of meditation that we're going to have. One object of meditation would be the eye and seeing and the, and the consciousness of seeing. Mm-hmm. These are all things. So um, this actually uh, can be the next talk that we have. But basically, the question that I'm raising now is, is that once you can get yourself into the first jhana, once you can get the mind completely wholesome mm-hmm. and that you have gladdened the mind and gotten the mind all into a really good state and and so much that you basically have talked yourself into feeling really good. So now that the student is feeling good, he's got um, comfort, security, um, satisfaction, and then eventually success at that. So when those things are built up into the first jhana, now the question mm-hmm. will be, well, what do we do with it? That's a good question. <laughs> I'm itching to know. <laughs> That's right. Because a lot of people say, well, now that I feel really good, so what? Right, right. What do we, what do we use it for? Yeah. And then some students will come out of their meditation with the sense of, well, that was nice, but I've had about as much joy as I can stand right now. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with me this evening. It's uh, It's been a real pleasure. And uh, as okay. always, you know, I really well, appreciate next it. Next time we call, we will do that. So keep that in mind and ask that question of, once we get the mind in a good state, what do we do with it? Sure. How do I'll we keep uh, and I'll give you a, a clue. Yeah. And the clue is you got yourself into um, the first jhana by maintaining wholesome mind state. Mm-hmm. So part of the job is to maintain that wholesome mind state. Mm-hmm. Another point would be that once we um, have uh, gotten rid of the hindrances completely, that means that whatever we're going to be noticing, whatever we're going to be noting is not going to be the hindrances. Mm-hmm. Where mostly the people who are practicing Mahasi, they do the noting and they note the hindrance. They note the hindrance and they see it and dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. I see that dukkha. I'm going really deep into that dukkha now. We call this deep meditation. And if I go deep enough into that dukkha, I'm going to find some insight in there someplace. Mm-hmm. Right? But no. Now that we've gotten the mind completely wholesome, there is no unwholesome states that are to be investigated. Only wholesome things are to be investigated because that's all that's left now. Right. Right. And if we would notice something that is unwholesome, we immediately throw it out. 
not investigated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're only going to be investigating wholesome things. Right. Is being free from uh, the hindrances a wholesome thing? Yes. <laughs> then that's to be investigated. How about having yeah. the mind to be applied to the wholesome and keep the mind sustained on the wholesome? Is that a wholesome thing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that's the thing that needs to be mindfully noted. This is applied thought. This is sustained thought. How is my applied thought? Is it working right? Is it working right? Okay. Another one. How about sati? Is sati a wholesome thing to wake up? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that's to be noticed or investigated while we're in uh, a really wholesome state of first jhana. How is my sati? Right. Another one would be the investigation itself. Uh, investigate my investigation. How right. is my investigation? That would be right. something. How by effort? How is my energy? So now we're actually spending our time on wholesome things. Mm-hmm. Now we'll go into a great deal of uh, in detail later, but this is the idea is, is that once you get into the first jhana, the things that we need to notice then in the first jhana are the first jhana factors. How's my pity? Wow, this feels really nice. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Oh, this is third <laughs> noble truth. Oh, I'm completely free from suffering right now. Isn't that marvelous? Okay. Right. These right. are the things, the things <laughs> that we're going to be doing is that we're looking for joy and we're finding it and and um, we're investigating the wholesome. We investigate the jhana factors. We investigate the Eightfold Noble Path. In fact, we investigate the Four Noble Truths. This is all wholesome stuff. Right. Okay. But uh, in that regard, we're only going to be in investigating only part of the Eightfold Noble, uh, excuse me, only part of the whole process of Paticca Samuppada. We're not going to investigate the whole thing. Why? Because after feelings, when ignorance comes in, that takes us into grasping and clinging and being reborn again into, into the hell worlds, et cetera, we're not doing that right now. Right. That's right. what the Mahasi meditator to do. That's why he's going to wind up in a state of fear, misery, disgust, and great desire to get out of it. But we're sitting in the first jhana, so we're not going to have any of that. But what we yep. can investigate is what are feelings? How do things contact me? What is perception? What is consciousness? These are the things that would be wholesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now that you've got the mind fit for work, now the time for noting. When the mind is fit for work, most of the noting for most meditators is done when the mind's not fit for work. Right. Okay. So the Does wholesome, yeah, we're we're leading toward the wholesome, which are things that will help us to ultimately, you know, re release the hindrances, release clinging, and you know, yada yada liberation. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Cool. <laughs> great. Great. When there's no more friction, things don't get hot, and when things don't get hot, they're unconditioned with that heat, You're and full. things are just cool. Yeah. <laughs> So the Pali word that the Buddha used, nibbana, we use that in English language when we say cool off mm -hmm. or cool, mm -hmm. baby, cool. <laughs> okay, chill. Yeah. These are the words. That's what nibbana means. <laughs> but yet in Western Buddhism, nibbana is way.
way up there near Jesus someplace. <laughs> way out of reach. Right. <laughs> okay, well, James, I you got some some place to go with this, and so I'll see you later. Got another call coming in. Sure. Thank you so much again for for your time and your just everything. Have a wonderful week, and we'll talk soon. May you be happy. You too. May you be well. Right, buddy. Now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> see you. <laughs> <laughs>